This is Mishmash, a weekly conversation where we try to unjumble an important and sometimes under-the-radar statewide story that affects you. I'm Shana Roth, and I'm joined today by longtime Capitol and politics reporter, now working for Bridge, Jonathan Osting. Jonathan, welcome to Mishmash. Hey, Shana. Thanks for having me. So we can't seem to get through a week without there being some new catfight within the Michigan Republican Party. The latest is over the lieutenant governor pick ahead of the November midterms. GOP governor nominee Tudor Dixon announced at the last minute that she wanted former state representative Shane Hernandez. So before we get into the drama of why she might not get what she wants... Jonathan, who is Hernandez? So Shane Hernandez is not particularly well-known statewide, but he is a former state lawmaker. Um, He served in the legislature from 2017 to, I think, 2020. And in fact, he chaired the House Appropriations Committee, which is like a really powerful committee that oversees state budgets, you know, controls, helps control anyways, the purse strings of state government. Um, So he was fairly well-known during his time in Lansing, but he was only here four years in the legislature. Then he ran for Congress and he lost lost in the thumb area primary against now U.S. Rep. Lisa McLean. Some of the arguments against him is that grassroots activists are concerned he might not be conservative enough, but in fact, he is pretty conservative lawmaker. He was voted, in fact, most conservative uh, in the state house by MERS, the subscription news service that covers all things capital here in Lansing. And he emerged, he came out of the Tea Party movement. He does have, we should point out, the Trump endorsement. Donald Trump has come out and said that Shane Hernandez is the guy to be the lieutenant governor. Now, in the past, when the gubernatorial candidate says, hey, this is my running mate, that person is their running mate. But this is no ordinary year. And there's been a lot of infighting in the GOP as the November slate is chosen. And it seems that lieutenant governor is going to be no different. You mentioned grassroots establishment uh, Republicans. What's what's going on here? So this is sort of just a proxy fight for for the gubernatorial election, right? The grassroots Republicans didn't get their candidate uh, in the uh, in the primary election. Uh, now Tudor Dixon herself is very conservative. She was endorsed by Trump. She's a Trump loyalist herself, but she was also backed by the DeVos family of West Michigan, which is you know to Republicans, uh, the Republican establishment. You know, she wasn't the first choice of a lot of these diehard activists who really have huge sway in the state party right now. I mean, it used to be like in the Tea Party days that those folks were sort of on the outskirts of the state party. Right now, the so-called MAGA Republicans, or they say America First Republicans, they dominate the state party convention. They already got two of their own um, on the ticket this fall, Matt DiPerno for Attorney General, Christina Caramo for Secretary of State. But yeah, so it's this sort of proxy fight. The the grassroots activists are saying, well, we didn't get our first choice of the gubernatorial race, but maybe we can pair her with somebody we think really comes from the grassroots or speaks to the grassroots or, um, you know, will fight for the same sort of things that the grassroots want to fight for and maybe be a check and a balance against, um, you know, the establishment influence that Tudor Dixon may have. I'll just note the lieutenant governor really isn't all that powerful of a position. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the, the role of a lieutenant governor is largely defined by whatever the governor wants them to be. You know, I mean, they do oversee the state Senate, right? They preside over it. Uh, but in terms of like crafting policy, uh, the governor can invite them to the table for that or not. So, you know, just getting a, a grassroots Republican in the lieutenant governor nominee, nominee position 
doesn't guarantee uh, that Tudor Dixon is somehow going to listen to everything that person says. Yeah, it seems to be more of the grassroots trying to throw their weight around and, and to make their voices known. You had a quote in your recent piece on the issue where one grassroots organizer called the other members of the GOP the, quote, corrupt Michigan Republican Party. So big picture, how problematic is this infighting? I mean, this has been going on for a little bit now. It seems that every time there's another nominee coming up for convention, there's some sort of fighting going on. Do you think this is going to die out or is this going to have problems for them come November? Well, I mean, it's messy for the Republican Party. And what it does, for instance, in the case of Tudor Dixon is now she's had to spend a couple more weeks after winning her own primary election to basically continue a shadow primary campaign campaign where she's trying to convince delegates now of her choice for lieutenant governor. So instead of starting to, you know, pivot more to the middle, doing public events, getting free media coverage by announcing new policy proposals or what have you. She's had to spend a lot of time on calls with GOP delegates, with Shane Hernandez, um, securing endorsements for Hernandez. I mean, the Trump endorsement didn't just come out of nowhere. Tudor Dixon's camp helped secure that, as well as endorsements from Matt DiPerno, amongst other people. Um, so for her, it's been, I, I would say, sort of a distraction, right? She hasn't been able to run the exact campaign she wants, uh, I would imagine, uh, here in August. That said, um, all of this drama in the Michigan GOP, while it's messy and it might reflect somewhat poorly on the actual like apparatus of the party, it also shows that like these activists, GOP activists, are really fired up and enthusiastic. I mean, you go to county conventions, they're packed. The state convention this weekend is going to be packed. So, you know, these these activists are, are really engaged right now, and that's always a good thing. The irony, of course, is that the more influence the, so, the quote-unquote grassroots has, the less likely they might emerge from this whole process with a ticket that is going to be capable of winning in November or the strongest in November, right? I mean, you got a v real conservatives for AG, uh, Attorney General and Secretary of State already with Matt DiPerno and Christina Caramo, both huge Trump loyalists who sort of made uh, their name by challenging the results of the 2020 election. That's not a winning issue in the general election. I mean, elections are in Michigan, a purple state elections are one in the middle, you know, with independent voters or with, you know, moderate Republicans or moderate Democrats. So the more the, the quote unquote grassroots gets their way, uh, the less likely they might be to actually get their final, you know, their, achieve their final goal, which is um, ousting Gretchen Whitmer and Dana Nessel and Jocelyn Benson this fall. It's a really interesting um, dichotomy, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a very tricky balance that they need to figure out. And seeing the forest through the trees is going to be key to making any inroads come November. How likely in your mind is it that Dixon is going to get the running mate that she wants, that Shane Hernandez will be the lieutenant governor nominee? I think it's actually really likely at this point. Um, as I, as you mentioned, um, Tudor Dixon was able to help secure an endorsement from Donald Trump. 
Um, also, um, Matt DiPerno, as I mentioned, has endorsed Shane Hernandez. GOP uh, committee woman Kathy Burden has endorsed him. So a lot of big names uh, who, you know, still have pretty uh, heavy influence over the GOP delegates have have, you know, made their position clear. Um, Shane Hernandez is also as I mentioned, spent a lot of time these past two weeks now reaching out to delegates, trying to convince them like, hey, I was a grassroots Republican once too before I won office, you know, uh, and, 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 and also, um, you know, I think that I, I did some reporting this week. The rules of the convention are just such that it's going to be hard to actually um to actually overturn Dixon's choice. So there's going to basically Shane Hernandez, there's going to be a voice vote on the floor uh, to to determine whether he has support from 50% of GOP delegates. A voice vote means people just yell yay or nay. And the convention chair, whoever that ends up being, I, I don't know yet, the convention chair can basically say, oh, I heard more A's or I heard more nays. Um, and we saw in 2018, for instance, the same thing happened at a GOP convention with Supreme Court Justice Beth Clement. Uh, a lot of GOP activists were really mad at her about some decisions she had made recently, including um, allowing the voters, not politicians, redistricting initiative onto the ballot. And when they put her nomination for re-election up for a voice vote, there were a bunch of boos. Uh, but the chair just went, the A's have it, and <laughs> and, uh, and she was nominated. So um, I think the rules are such that it's actually going to be pretty hard to mount a challenge. Um, that said, there might be some uh, pretty upset people, and it might get a little messy if that happens this time around as well. And one of those people, one of the main people who would probably be upset if there is a voice vote is Ralph Rebant. He is vying to be named lieutenant governor nominee. Since we talked about Hernandez, let's talk about Reband. Who is he and why is he claiming he would be the better candidate? Yeah, so Reband actually ran for governor against Tudor Dixon. He's a recently retired pastor um, from uh, Metro Detroit. He finished fifth, so he was last uh, in the GOP primary ballot amongst um, candidates that actually made the ballot. James Craig ended up running as a write-in and he finished last, technically. Um, but Reband was the last of the named candidates on the ballot. Um, but grassroots activists, as I've mentioned, have been searching for somebody, anybody, to try and represent them on the gubernatorial ticket. So they first uh, were really encouraging um, Garrett Soldano, who is the third place finisher um, in the GOP gubernatorial primary, to run for lieutenant governor. He ultimately opted against it. Rebant um, is the only one who has declared publicly that if Shane Hernandez is not affirmed um, in that convention vote, that he would then accept the nomination from the floor. That's how the process would work. Um, he is, he's held uh, several planning calls with GOP delegates. Uh, there, in fact, he had a Zoom last night, uh, that Thursday night, um, preparing for the convention with his supporters. Um, I tried to log on to that, but apparently they had the, um, the cheap Zoom subscription, and it was capped out at 100 people. So I know there are at least 100 people on there. I was not one of them, so I don't know what was said because, uh, you know, they didn't have the, the pro subscription or whatever it's called. Um, so anyways, it seems like there's some interest in him um, from from these grassroots delegates. The question is whether, you know, 
it'll even get to the point where he is uh, able to be nominated from the floor. Let's shift gears just a little bit and talk about ballot proposals. There were challenges to two major ballot initiatives, one to enshrine the right to an abortion in the state constitution and one to increase voter access. There was a big step on those after the Bureau of Elections weighed in on whether there were enough valid signatures. What is the latest with those? Yeah, so the latest uh, on Thursday, the Bureau of Elections um, recommended um, that the Board of State Canvassers, which is a bipartisan board of four members, uh, the, the Bureau of Elections recommended that the Board of State Canvassers certify both of these petitions for the November ballot because, uh, according to the Bureau analysis, they clearly got enough signatures. I mean, um, both of them had almost double, maybe more than double the amount actually needed. Uh, there was a huge um you know, number of voters who signed these petitions. I don't think it was never really in question whether they were going to have enough signatures because even opponents of these initiatives who challenged them, challenged them on other reasons, not the signatures themselves, which is where you usually see challenges. We saw a bunch of gubernatorial candidates, James Craig, get kicked off the ballot because of signature challenges uh, earlier this year. So the challenges that that are out there, and they still are out there, the, the Bureau of Elections that they it's not their purview to weigh in on those challenges, but the canvassers might decide to take them into consideration. So on the reproductive rights or the abortion rights initiative, the challenge is based on kind of a weird issue, but one you look at, you, you can't see it. Um, there's not clear spacing between words actually on the petition. They, they had to modify it slightly before circulating by taking out one word. And somewhere in that process, they call it kerning, I guess, like like the weird spaces between words got got adjusted. And if you just look at it quickly, you can see the point that critics are making. You know, it does appear uh, that instead of a bunch of separate words, you've got in cases like five words all mashed together and you can't tell where one stops and one begins. Now, supporters say, well, you know, anybody can figure out the intent here. It's a spacing issue when it's actually written into the Constitution. They'll just make that space a little bigger and everybody will understand what happens. But, uh, you know, the canvassers, again, two Republicans, two Democrats may um, think that that's an issue that that could preclude them from certifying it. If that happens, it would go to court, uh, you know, and uh, ultimately probably the Michigan Supreme Court would decide um, whether the initiative can appear on the ballot. Um, in the case of the voting rights initiative, um, it's one that would allow early voting. It would allow uh, more absentee ballot drop boxes, things like that. Um, that one, the issue is whether, again, a sort of a, a substance issue, not a signature issue. The challenge is whether or not the, um, the, the people who drafted that proposal referenced all of the sections of the state constitution that it would impact or nullify or invalidate. So, um, for instance... There is a part of the state constitution that says the legislature can make laws um, to uh, deny voting access to people for mental health or incarceration reasons. In other words, the state legislature could decide people in prison can't vote. This constitutional amendment would say anybody has the right that no law can abridge that. Um, and that would be in conflict potentially with this other section of the state constitution. So the challengers say 
the people who wrote this proposal should have made that clear that that section of the Constitution might be um, abrogated is the technical word. So, um, again, an interesting challenge. I don't know um, how it's going to play out, but the Bureau said that's not in their purview to decide. Uh, we'll see if canvassers think it's an issue or not. Do we know when we're going to get final decisions on this? I believe it's next week. Yep. So pretty soon, um, you know, we know absentee. There's not a ton of time. Absentee ballots have to be printed and ready to be made public by late September. So um, everything's coming to a head pretty quick here. So it's very possible that there will be three proposals on the November ballot, the two we just talked about, and then one to change term limits. How do you think having these proposals on the ballot is going to play a role in the election overall? Let's say we get all three of them on there. Yeah, I mean, I think one uh, above all else has the has the you know possibility, the capability of really impacting turnout in the election. That's the abortion uh, proposal. I mean, obviously, it's a super hot button issue right now with uh, the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. There's this old 1931 law that Michigan still has the, on the books. Currently, enforcement of that law has been suspended, uh, but it's still an open question of how that legal process might play out. Um, so we've seen in a couple other states already recently, New York and um, I forget who it was before that, maybe Kansas, um, that there has been huge turnout uh, in, in a couple special elections for Democrats. I mean, you had it, you know, six months ago, every political prognosticator in the country would have told you this is shaping up to be a really miserable year for Democrats. High inflation, uh, gas prices. Uh, Joe Biden is historically unpopular. Midterm elections are almost always a referendum on the party that controls the White House. Um, so Democrats had a lot of factors working against them. What we've seen now in a couple other states is that perhaps the political landscape has shifted because of the Roe v. Wade decision by the U.S. Supreme Court that uh, Democrats are going to turn out in large numbers, especially, you would imagine, if there's a proposal on the, on the ballot specifically dealing with this issue. I mean, for candidates, it's important, too, because, right, whoever wins the governor's office and wins the state legislature is going to be able to write new laws if they wanted to. Uh, but this proposal would amend the state constitution. So it would trump any laws. I mean, it's um, uh, it's a bigger deal than than a, than a law being invalidated or passed, even if the constitution was actually amended to guarantee the right to abortion. So I imagine that proposal in particular, if it makes the ballot, uh, will uh drive turnout and it will also be a knockdown drag out fight i imagine millions of dollars from all over the country or will pour into michigan to either fight or support that proposal should it make the ballot you're going to see a lot of commercials about uh, abortion and abortion restrictions this fall potentially finally let's wrap up by talking just a little bit about auto no fault there was a pretty major ruling that came down this week regarding the caps on coverage. Can you just take us through what happened and what it means? Yeah. So if you recall, um, several years back in 2019, uh, the Republican-led legislature and Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer came to agreement on this long side was sort of the, you know, the, the mythical unicorn or narwhal of, of Michigan politics. Could people actually create a plan that would rein in costs of car insurance, which in Michigan have historically been uh, among the highest in the nation? Because we had 
and, and to some extent still do have one of the most generous no-fault insurance systems in the state in terms of guaranteeing care for people if they are injured uh, catastrophically injured in automobile accidents. So part of that reform in 2019 changed um, reimbursement rates for providers uh, and and that impacted care um, from folks who were injured before the law uh, was passed. So somebody injured 10 years ago might have been getting one level of care uh, based on payments that no-fault insurance would make. And suddenly that changed in, in 2020 when the law took effect. Um, a lot of providers said they were were or were planning to potentially go out of business um, because that those price uh, you know fixed prices were were um, applied retroactively. Well, what happened yesterday um, is the Michigan Court of Appeals ruled that the law cannot be applied retroactively, that the state was wrong to try and apply it that way because you know folks who bought auto insurance ten years ago were doing so uh, under the assumption and in fact under a written contract that they would receive a certain level of care. So uh, the Court of Appeals sided with the victims and the um, the you know care industry that treats those victims uh, in this ruling is a two to one real ruling. Um, it sounds like it will be appealed to the Michigan Supreme Court, so it's not necessarily the end of the discussion, um, but it's a big victory for, for those folks who are fighting to uh, you know, maintain the, the rehabilitation centers that they were living in, et cetera. I mean, we'll note this, this issue also has political connotations, of course. Um, Whitmer has made, you know, she, these reforms help, help save the catastrophic injury fund some money. And then Whitmer encouraged that fund to send checks out earlier, uh, I believe it was last year, $400 checks to every motorist in the state. And she's made that kind of a big part of a reelection campaign. Like, look, I sent you checks. Well, it could now be argued that those checks were, you know, written on the back of folks who were um, perhaps denied care. They shouldn't have been. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out and whether it becomes a political issue as well. Jonathan Osting with Bridge Michigan. Thank you so much for joining me here today on Mishmash. Of course. Thanks for having me, Shannon.